Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. Yes, that's me, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. And we are going to get started right away. This is Cody Valcom, God's Sovereignty, and Man's Accountability. Thanks for listening. You know, sometimes God places us in the midst of situations and circumstances that speak more clearly than we ever could certain issues. Recently, I had such an experience. As we are walking through the book of Romans and taking our time to examine these great doctrines of the faith, we cannot help but be reminded of the fact that we live within the context of a culture that lives by the adage, doctrine divides. We just need to love Jesus and love people. We don't need to get caught up in the minutiae. We don't need to get caught up in all of the little details, disagreements, debates, clarifications, just not important. Last weekend, I saw this idea, this cultural concept just crash in on itself, our grandfather's funeral. You know that last Saturday I, I had uh, duty, responsibility, honor and the privilege of preaching at grandfather's funeral. And it was an absolute disaster in more ways than one. One, it was a disaster to be there and look at my family and see the great tragedy and to see what sin has wrought in the lives of those whom I love. It was also a very particular instance that caused me to realize the incredible importance of doctrine. As I sat there on the pulpit, the service started. It was announced that there was a minister who was going to come and open up the service. And so she came and stood up at the podium to open us in prayer. Well, now we already have a doctrinal issue of a female pastor officiating at this service. I decided I would be good. So I sat of my tongue at my house, at my room. And then there was another instance wherein this idea of doctrine being incredibly practical and relevant just came crashing in on me as the lady pastor stood up and looked toward the family. She's a friend of the family. I don't know her, but she was a friend of the family. And she looked toward the family and said, let not your heart be troubled. Her grandfather came to me in a vision on the morning that he died let me know that he made it over. That's me to comfort you. Well, 
So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I have to preach at my grandfather's funeral, and now my first assignment is to reach up and drag him down out of heaven where this woman just put him. So I did. Didn't tell people that my grandfather went to hell. I just told him that there was nothing in him or in his life that would indicate that he didn't, that there is no vision that overrides and overrules the gospel. That's an instance where doctrine is very practical. If somebody dies and there's a funeral, your doctrine becomes extremely practical. If somebody gets married, our doctrine becomes extremely practical, but newsflash, when you get up in the morning, doctrine becomes extremely practical. There is no doctrine more practical than the doctrine of justification by faith. This doctrine that Paul is building up toward for us in the book of Romans, as he is explaining for us what it means to be justified by faith, the first thing that he does drag some folks down out of heaven. He basically says there are some of you who have believed all your life that this is what it means to be saved. You believe that you're okay. You believe that your group is okay, but another group is not okay. And it is true that there are some people who are right with God and others who are not. You're using the wrong yardstick to make the distinction. He starts by waylaying the Gentile world. After he waylays the Gentile world and his Jewish compatriots are shaking their fists in agreement, he says, did you think I wouldn't come to you? And so he does. But at this moment in chapter 3, what Paul is doing in the last part of this particular paragraph in verses 5 through 8 is he is answering some objections that would have been raised and had been raised by those who opposed the gospel that he preached. He answers these objections and demonstrates for us incredible practicality doctrine necessity doctrine importance doctrine so if you join me here in Romans chapter 3 beginning at verse 5 the necessity of doctrine But if our unrighteousness serves to show, back up, let's let's go back to the first verse there so we get the whole thing in one even flow. Look at what we looked at last week. And what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judgment. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Speak in a human way. By the way, that parenthetical statement that you see here is actually a very well-known and often used rabbinical teaching technique. And what it is is an apology. Paul is actually apologizing. He's speaking words that are hypothetical. He's speaking on behalf of his opponents. He actually utters the phrase or introduces the idea of the possibility of God being unjust. So pious was this Jew. Immediately after even suggesting such a thing, he offers what his hearers would have readily understood as an apology for having to speak such a word in order to make his point. By no means. But then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. There's a pattern here. And the pattern goes like this. There are two conditional statements. Two if-then clauses. But if, then, then. Immediately followed by, but if, then, then. Both of these are hypothetical. Both of these are stated rhetorically and both refuted by the Apostle Paul. But as we see him go through this exercise, there are several things that we learn about this practical issue of doctrine. First is this. We see that Paul is instructing in sound doctrine. I know that, that, that this actually sounds obvious to us, but I'm afraid that it's not. Because the way we often go through the biblical text and the way we have been conditioned to look at the biblical text is to sort of break it down into its component parts and look for principles that we can apply to certain areas of our lives or things that can comfort us in our time of need. That is not to say that either of those is necessarily or inherently wrong. There are things that I need to apply to the way that I live, but that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not just a book that I'm to dig into to find something that I need for the moment. The Bible's not just a book for me to go to in order to find comfort. Ultimately, what we realize is that the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul in an effort to instruct God's people. And his effort to instruct God's people did not consist of five ways to have a happy life and ten ways to reduce stress and four ways to have healthy, happy kids. That is not his instruction to the church. He meant for this to be read publicly in the church, and it is chock full of doctrine from beginning to end. This is the way God's people are to be instructed. Doctrine is practical. When it comes to the way that we live our lives, there is nothing more practical. Everything that we do expresses what we believe or don't believe. 
But what Paul is doing here is he's exercising something that he has, for example, told others to exercise in their ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, for example, he tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Prove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. He warns him that the time is coming when People will not endure sound doctrine, but instead of enduring sound doctrine, they'll gather for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Who will tickle their itching ears. And immediately he comes back and he tells young Timothy, but you, you're, you're, you're not to be like them. You're to be sober-minded. You're to endure suffering. You're to do the work of an evangelist. You are to fulfill your ministry, which goes back to what? Preach the word. Teach the doctrines. That is the responsibility of all of those who handle God's word. Teach the doctrines, not not just the practicalities, because if we run directly to the practicalities, oftentimes, we try to do the right thing for the wrong reason, end up doing it the right way, and it doesn't end up being the right thing after all. Amen? So we see the practicality of doctrine in that that's the way Paul instructs the church. In all of his epistles, in fact, we see the indicatives and the imperatives. We see the indicatives or the doctrinal truths and the imperatives that flow from the indicatives. In other words, whenever we find indicatives in the scriptures, whenever we find indicatives in the New Testament, indicatives in the, in, the, in the epistles, whenever the apostles are saying to us, believer, do this, believer, do that, believer, live like this, believer, live like that, those imperatives are always accompanied by indicatives. In other words, because you belong to Jesus Christ, therefore, do this. Because of what Christ has done, therefore, believe that. In other words, all of the practical outworkings of our faith are directly related to the central, crucial, and core doctrines. Doctrines. He is instructing here in sound doctrine. We've seen it thus far from the beginning of the book of Romans as he is laying out his argument for the doctrines. Secondly, there's the defense of sound doctrine. We see, for example, here in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And he says their condemnation is just. Actually, what Paul is doing here is defending sound doctrine against those who have, who have assailed sound doctrine. You see, for example, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he tells Titus, basically explaining what he means in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about uh, elders being those who are able to teach. He expounds on that in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. He gives us three things. Number one, that he holds fast to the doctrine as taught so that he may be able to instruct in sound doctrine and finally to refute those who contradict it. 
not only is it the responsibility of the elder to do what Paul is doing here, obviously he is refuting those who contradict sound doctrine. And it would be one thing if that was just the responsibility of those who are teachers. But, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, All believers always be ready, always be ready to give an answer. And anyone who asks you the reason the hope is in you, do it with gentleness and with reverence. We also find in Jude 3, in Jude 3, he says, I'm writing so that you may contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. So not only is there the idea of the proclamation of sound doctrine or the instruction in sound doctrine, there's also the picture that we see here as Paul goes through this teaching that he is defending sound doctrine. That's important. Though it makes us uncomfortable, it is important. Doctrine must be defended. There are those who assail the doctrine, and we must stand against those who assail the doctrine, which is precisely what Paul does here. But look at the way that he does it. Look again at verse 5. Remember, last week we looked at the fact that in Acts, he went first to the synagogue of Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles. But the question is, what did he do in the synagogue? He reasoned with them in the synagogue. He didn't just preach to them in the synagogue. He reasoned with them in the synagogue. But what we have here is the result of his reasoning with them in the synagogue. There are some questions that have been raised as Paul has proclaimed the gospel again and again and again, specifically when he's proclaiming it in the synagogue. There are those in the synagogue who are making charges against him. And as he makes his argument for justification by faith alone, he realizes that some of the things that he has just said in chapter 2 and now beginning in chapter 3 rub people the wrong way. Not only do they rub people in the wrong way in general, but in particular they rub people the wrong way. And here's the way it rubs them. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? By the way, that phrase, what shall we say, is not used in any other book. It's used here in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? By the way, when Paul uses this throughout the book of Romans, he's about to offer a question to which he's going to give the answer. He is the one asking the question. But here we know he's asking a question that represents those who oppose him. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us by no means. It's that Greek phrase that we see a number of times throughout Romans, meganoita. May it never be. Then how could God judge the world? But if through the lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Here's the question. People are saying, Paul, if, if, if you believe this, if, if, if this is what you're arguing, 
aren't you sort of saying this about God? Aren't you making an argument that would present God as being unjust? Aren't you making an argument that would basically present God as the author of evil? For those who oppose this sound doctrine, we see that it's proclaimed, and we also see that it's defended. Defended against whom? Well, there are a couple of different options. Some have argued that what Paul is defending against here is actually Jews who are who are libertines. They're 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 antinomian. Don't like the idea of law. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in light of the argument that Paul is making. Here's another argument, and I want to read this for you. It's a rather extensive quote, but the more I read it and tried to pare it down, and the more I tried to just characterize it, the more I realized that it's just good enough and important enough to be read. It's from Tom Schreiner. Listen to Schreiner. Jews probably argued the entrance into the covenant was by God's grace. It was maintained by keeping the law. Jews who responded appropriately to God's grace law-keeping would be saved. By the way, doesn't that sound familiar? In our day, those people who argue, yeah, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we're, we're kept by our own works and our own righteousness. God gets it going, but we have to sustain it. Pauling view was both similar and different. Paul also maintained that entrance into the covenant was by grace. He insisted that the decisive reason for one's entrance into the church was God's unconditional election. This is the doctrine that bothered them. They thought that election was conditional. Conditional upon what? Conditional upon you being born a Jew. How do I know I'm elect? Because my mother's a Jew. How do I know I'm elect? I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's how I know that I'm elect. It's conditioned based upon my lineage. It's conditioned based upon my keeping of the law. Paul, however, destroys that because he's arguing for unconditional election. Paul agreed that law-keeping was necessary to be saved, but he emphasized that obedience to the law was the result of the Holy Spirit's power in working believers. The Jewish opponents argued that the logical corollary of of the Pauline view of human corruption spared Jews from moral responsibility. According to Paul, some Jews would be the beneficiaries of God's saving grace, while others would not receive his mercy. If human beings could not cooperate with God's grace, if his grace shines more brightly in rescuing helpless human beings from sin, then Paul's Jewish adversaries concluded the Pauline gospel taught that we should do evil in order to advance the good of God saving impotent sinners. Indeed, opponents wondered how God could legitimately judge his people since human beings were so corrupt sin was inevitable. And all depended on God's electing grace. Therefore, Paul's Jewish adversaries drew out what they believed were logical implications of the Pauline gospel in order to reject its validity. All of you believe, as you've said, that man is totally corrupt and completely unable to cooperate with God. 
if you believe, as you've been arguing, Paul, that God saves sinners by free grace, that their election is unconditional. It is not based on anything other than the grace of God. It is not based on anything other than God's election of that person. That God is the author of salvation from beginning to end. That salvation is monergistic rather than synergistic. If that's your argument, Paul, then basically you're saying evil is good because it brings glory to God. We ought to just do more evil so God can be more glorified. And if I can't do anything, then why should I try to do anything? Isn't that what you're arguing, Paul? His answer, may it never be. What I'm arguing is very simple. What I'm arguing is, he's going to say this in the next paragraph. Let me summarize. What I'm arguing is, those of you who are Jews, you have no problem saying that the Gentile world is rightly condemned because they don't keep God's law. What I'm saying is, you don't either. For you're also rightly condemned. All men are rightly condemned. However, this is the rub. In Paul's day and in our day, there are those who take the view that is classically referred to as the semi-Pelagian view. It says, in the fall of man, there is just enough of an inkling goodness, just enough of an inkling of righteousness for man to be able in and of himself, perhaps not to save himself, but at least to offer the last decisive measure, that there is at least enough in man man, if not to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, to at least grasp his fingers around the loopholes and pull while God does the work. There is at least enough of an inkling in man for man to be able to cooperate enough with God so that God can perhaps look down through the corridors of time and see which men would act upon that little inkling of goodness that remained in them that wasn't touched by the fall, so that God could respond by electing those that he knew would do their little part. And Paul says, may it never be. Opponents said, okay, yes, we're saved by grace. You're right, Paul. Because I didn't decide from whose womb I would be born. You're, you're right. Saved by grace. This. Because I was born a Jew, I didn't choose to be a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't even able to say, okay, go ahead. So yes, Paul, yes. That was by grace. I tell you what, God's grace brought me into this community of faith. God's grace brought me into this covenant community. It is my works and my keeping of the law 
will justify me when I stand before God. Paul says, May it never be. That is simply not the case. (laughs) What are you saying? That I can do nothing to save myself? And that's where the first question comes from. Paul, if you're saying that I can do nothing to save myself, you might as well go ahead and say that God has no right to judge me. Since I can do nothing to save myself, see the first question in verse 5. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? God is uh, is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? There's the question. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Speak in a human way. He doesn't even want to voice that opinion. By no means. But then how could God judge the world? Now he hoists them on their own petard. Wait, 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 hold, time out, time, time out. You're saying that God is unjust if he holds you to account and you don't have the ability to do what's required of you. And that somehow God shouldn't be able to judge the world because he would be unjust if he required something of you that you were unable to give. Paul basically says, I, I got one question for you. You do believe that he's going to judge the Gentiles, right? Yes, he is. But why? Well, because they weren't born Jews. Oh, really? So he's going to judge them for something they had nothing to do with. Oh, but also they weren't circumcised on the eighth day. Again, he's going to judge them for something they had nothing to do with. Well, well but, I mean, but they also... They don't keep the law. Yeah, but said yourself, they don't have it. Paul paints them into a corner. Why is it you believe God's going to judge the Gentile world, although they, according to your own argument, can't do anything about their predicament? You don't believe he's going to judge you by the same standard. goes back to his argument in chapter 2. You talk about the law, but you break it yourself. Consider yourself a teacher of the law, but you don't hold to it yourself. So here's the question. What is the other alternative? There's no other alternative. He gets to a specific objection in the next verse. Through my lie, God's truth bounds his glory, still being condemned as a sinner. Another version of the same argument. Here's the practicality. Why not do evil that good may come? Some people slanderously charge us with saying. How wrong is that, Paul says? Condemnation is just. That's how wrong that is. No, that's not true. And yet they charge us with it anyway. Their condemnation is just. They know that's not what I teach, but they charge me with it anyway. Their condemnation is just. They know that that's not what I'm saying. Yet, they say that I have to be saying that. Their condemnation is just. 
not what I'm arguing. Now, here's what's a little uncomfortable. You have to remember that the letter was meant to be read in its entirety. Paul doesn't answer the question here. He's got some more building to do. When we get to verse 9, we see the guilt of all men in verse 9 as clearly as it's stated anywhere in the Bible. We finally come to a place by the end of verse 20 where we say, you know what? There is no answer. There is no hope. We're all condemned. God is just. He's got to judge us. And that's where he's got us, right where he wants us. There's that phrase that comes in about Jesus Christ being offered as a propitiation for our sins so that God could simultaneously be just and the justifier, the one who places faith in Jesus Christ. We don't understand man's inability and unconditional election. Don't understand salvation by grace alone. We don't understand. As a result of the fall, man is completely and totally and utterly depraved. In other words, remember we've said before, not that man is as bad as he could be. God's common grace, that is not the case, and we all ought to shout amen. Not just for me, but for everyone else out there. Amen? Praise God that I'm not as bad as I could be, but also praise God that my neighbor is not as bad as he could be. Don't understand this. We don't understand salvation by grace. Because we're holding out this idea. Man may only do 1% to God's 99%. Still, this is the deciding factor. There's a famous tract, evangelism tract. Dwight Moody track. And it was this famous track that had a picture of uh, an election ballot. And on the one side, it had Satan, the other side, God. In the middle, it's you. God has cast his vote for heaven. Satan has cast his vote for hell. Now it's time for you to cast the deciding vote. But wait a minute, don't we have to repent and believe? Yes. You can't even do that in and of yourself apart from the regenerating work of God's Spirit. It's God who works in us. Both to will and to work for is good pleasure. Send with me to the right, if you will. Look at the book of Ephesians. Because that sound doctrine Paul is defending is the doctrine of unconditional election. Election has to be unconditional. You're familiar with TULIP. Total depravity. The T, the U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. The P, the perseverance of the saints. U in that, 
is unconditional election. By the way, unconditional election is absolutely necessary because of total depravity. Man is totally depraved. In other words, if man is depraved in every part and facet of his being, and that means man is completely unable to cooperate with God in any way apart from the miraculous work of God in the life of that sinner. And that work has to be unconditional because of man's condition. Paul is defending here the doctrine of unconditional election. Election based on nothing that God foresaw in man. Not this election. Most contemporary Christians in our culture argue for. You see the word election in the Bible, so you can't just deny that it's there. You see predestination in the Bible, so you can't just deny that it's there. They see foreknowledge in the Bible, and you can't just deny that it's there. So what you do is you go to Romans chapter 8, you know, those whom he foreknew, and here's what you do. You do this little dance. Now, those whom he foreknew, what that means is the ones that he foreknew would choose him. So he chose people based on the fact that he knew that they would choose him. Really? Then I have reason to boast. God elected me. Why? Because he looked down through the corridors of time. There he looked. He saw me. He said, wait a minute, I think there's one who's going to choose me. I think there's one who's going to act upon that little spark that they all have. Yes, wait, wait, yes, there is. Now that I see in history or in the future what he's going to do, I will come back before the time that he's even born, and I will say, I love you. Now, it's only because you first loved me. I love you. I have reason to boast. That's the case. My election is conditional if that's the case. And the condition is God knew that I was going to be better than other people at using that spark that all of us have. I have reason to boast. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, the fullness of time. Unite all things in him, in heaven, on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Purpose of his will. Praise of his glory. Purpose of his will. Praise of his glory. The purpose of his will, the praise of his glory. That's the doctrine that Paul defends here. Doctrine of unconditional election. Salvation is of God. Now, let's put a pen here and pause for a moment. Some look at this doctrine that explains theologically how salvation happens and what God does and assume this ought to be their disposition. What are you doing? Waiting to see if God's going to save me. It's unconditional, you know. You praying? I'm not going to pray. Unconditional. You seeking him? I'm not going to seek him. It's unconditional. Are you pouring over the gospel? Because... You have to come to repentance and faith. You have to believe the gospel. Yeah, well, why would I want to do that? It's, 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 it's unconditional. It's the posture that some people take. Let me express this to you as clearly as I can. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Wait a minute. I thought it was unconditional. It is unconditional. It's him who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Cry out to God. Why would I cry out to God? Because you want to. Why do you think you want to? Uh, I, I, you, you think you make yourself want to? Is God working in you? Cry out to God. Beg God for his salvation. Cry out to God. Throw yourself upon his mercy. Cry out to God. Beg him to change your soul and to save you and to forgive you of your sin. That's what you do. Yeah, but I thought it was unconditional. It is. That is the work of God in your heart. You would not desire it nor carry it through apart from God. Seek him while he may be found. Come to him. Repentance and faith Preach the gospel to your children Preach the gospel to your neighbor That perchance God might grant them repentance But I thought it was unconditional It is unconditional But God ordains the ends As well as the means Preach the gospel Plead with men Beg them to come to repentance Don't ever stop don't ever give up. And that is completely and utterly consistent with the doctrine of unconditional election. Now I know it. Turn with me to the right and look in chapter 10 of the book of Romans.
beginning at verse 5. No one could argue Paul doesn't believe in the doctrine of unconditional election. No one could argue that Paul doesn't believe in the doctrine of total depravity. No one could argue that Paul doesn't believe and teach the doctrine of limited atonement. Irresistible grace. No one. No one could believe or argue that. And that in the book of Romans, he teaches it all multiple times again and again to make sure that you know that that's what Paul is teaching. And yet there are those who say that if you believe in the doctrines of grace, you don't believe in evangelism. And yet, man who wrote Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3 also wrote Romans chapter 10. Beginning in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we, are procla- that, that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, For who has believed, he has heard from us. The faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Same guy teaches total depravity says got to hear the gospel you got to respond in faith the same guy who teaches unconditional election says preach to the heathen they need to hear the gospel and respond in faith same guy who teaches limited atonement or particular redemption says preach to everyone same guy teaches irresistible grace. Let's go tell them. The same guy who teaches the perseverance of the saints says, watch how you live. Don't buy lies and false conundrums that you hear from the opponents of Pauline theology. He defended himself against them here. And those who believe them are still having to defend them against the very same attacks this day. He answers them. But he doesn't spend a lot of time 
After this, he immediately goes to the guilt of all men in that passage to slay all men. And after immediately going to that passage that proclaims the guilt of all men and slays all men and has us laying in the dust of our own sin, believing that we are absolutely hopeless, comes the next and perhaps most beautiful paragraph in the entire Bible for the doctrine of justification by faith, propitiation for sin and Christ's blood is exalted to the highest of heights. And we look up from the dust and from our defeated state and are finally in a position to behold and rightly exalt our only hope, who is Jesus Christ. Dare trust in yourself. Do not dare trust in your works. Do not dare trust in your lineage. Do not dare trust in how good you are compared to the unrighteousness of other men. Call on the Lord while he may be found. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ. Cling to him and him alone because he is indeed your only hope. Make God unrighteous. May it never be. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's pray. that on his hand. What in the world is on her arm? Don't they know tattoos are sinful? Are they? And I guess it's worth looking into since it's become such a hot topic these days, especially among Christians. But as Christians, what matters, at least what should matter, is what God's word says about something, not our biases based on our own proclivities. But anyway, let's get right into it. The two main biblical references Christians go to when it comes to tattoos are a, Leviticus 19.28, and 2, 1 Corinthians 6.19. So let's uh, take an uno and a timeo, if you will, or even if you won't. But now we depart from our regularly scheduled show to talk about the basics of Bible interpretation. Hermeneutics, that is. Texas T. Well, the next thing I know, well, I got an acronym to help you remember just how to honor him. I'd wrap it all together and I'd put it in the bank. But the best I could do is offer you SPANK. What? Yeah, the acronym is S-P-A-N-C. SPANK. Now stop giggling and follow along. S is for seeking the truth, because if you don't do that, what's the point? P is prescriptive or descriptive. Is the text telling us to do something, or is it simply describing something? A is for the author's intended message. This is not about what you wanted to say. N is to never yank a Bible verse out of its proper place. C is for context, because if you don't understand that, you're going to mess it all up. And now, back to Lev 1928. It says, and I quote, 
you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So clear. I mean, nobody should get a tattoo, right? It's right there. I mean, right? Okay. Let's start thinking. Let's S, seek the truth, trying to put aside our biases. Then we go to P, prescriptive or descriptive. Well, since this starts with you shall not, it's pretty obvious. It's prescriptive. Now the A, author's intended message, is revealed in the context, as it often is. And we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, let's never yank Lev 1928 or any other verse out of its proper place, which means we've got to put it back where it belongs in order to truly see the C for context. In context, we see this verse as a statute from God, written among other statues, like the verse right before it. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. So first off, if you're going to state that 1928 forbids tattoos for New Testament Christians, then you've got to stick to the hair manicuring customs of 1927 as well. You dig? Now, the historical and theological context sheds even more light on the meaning of this passage. First of all, it was written to the Israelites, God's chosen tribe he would use to bring people closer to him through ritual, the priesthood, and purity statutes, all designed for the holiness of the Israelites. And since God is holy and also loving, he wants his people to be holy in order to receive the fullness of his love. But surrounding them were ungodly people, pagans who were marking themselves with images of false gods and performing idolatrous rituals. Now we can see that the specific command to the Israelites within the Old Covenant was to make sure they didn't practice things associated with pagan rituals. They were not to in any way identify with false gods because that would be idolatry. Instead, they were to identify with and love the one true God with all their heart, soul, and might. Okay. What about 1 Corinthians 6.19? I mean, as Christians, we're not bound by the ceremonial or civil laws of the Old Covenant, but this is straight from the New Covenant. Okay, well, let's spank it, but let's do it a little faster this time. And you've heard this before. People throw it out all the time. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't do this or don't do that. But in context, we read, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So I think it's pretty obvious here that the author's message is that Christians should flee from sexual immorality. This verse has nothing to do with tattoos. Thank goodness I'm all good. Let's all go get inked. Well, hold on a second. Before you think you have carte blanche to run off and cover your body with tons of tasks, there are biblical principles like godliness, modesty, and concern for others that should actually prevent you from putting a tattoo of a pentagram on your forehead or bad words on your knuckles. You might also want to resist the temporary compulsion to put permanent things on your body and prayerfully consider your motivation before you just smack on a face tat of Emperor Palpatine just to follow a, a trend or fit in with the cool kids or be liked by your Comic-Con Bottom line, your devotion to Jesus and concern for the reputation of his bride, yeah, should be priority over any desire you have to just simply express yourself. But hey, like it or not, dig it or diss it, this statement that the Bible forbids outright any and all forms of tattoos has been debunked. Adios. Everyone worships something. This is Ken Ham, and we've written the three-volume evangelism set, World Religions and Cults. Earlier this year, the Satanic Temple hosted SatanCon. It's a conference for Satanists. It was heavily focused on sexuality and gender. Now, this event sold out with several hundred people in attendance. Yes, Satanism, which is really just a form of atheism, is growing. But why? Well, because everyone worships something. There's always a God on the throne of your heart. And as our culture has become more and more secular, they really haven't gotten rid of God or worship. They've just replaced the one true God with a new God, the God of self. 
and they worship that God religiously. So here's a question for you. Who are you worshiping? Plan your trip to northern Kentucky to visit our high-tech creation museum and popular art encounter. Go to AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Many Bible websites and apps have said this is one of the most looked-up Bible verses on the web. The way it usually gets interpreted is like this. Don't be like anyone else or who the world wants you to be. Be who God made you to be. That's all well and good, but when this verse is taken by itself, who God made you to be is typically who you want to be. And God's will for your life is really your will for your life. God's will for you is that you would be sanctified, abstain from sexual immorality, control your own body, grow in holiness, and give thanks to God in all circumstances. Which, by the way, that happens to be Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul previously spent the first 11 chapters of Romans explaining the mercies of God in the giving of his son. Jesus died for us, so we are to live for him, holy and acceptable to God, and this is worship. To be holy means to be set apart. Don't think like the world thinks. Have the mind of Christ. Then we're able to know God's will as revealed in his word, the Bible. Being transformed in Christ, we desire to worship God in a way that is good and acceptable and perfect when we understand the text. In our last two segments, we looked at the question, who is Jesus? First of all, we looked at it in terms of how Jesus' contemporaries viewed him. And in the last section, we looked at how Jesus understood his own ministry and his own identity. What I want to do in this segment is ask the question, how did God look at Jesus? When I look at that and see how complex our doctrinal statements tend to be in the contemporary church, it it amazes me when I go back to the primitive church, the first century Christian church, and realize that the very first confession of faith of the Christian church was extremely brief. It was one Jesus o curios. Jesus is Lord. Before theology developed and the church had to think through its position on many, many issues, it was enough at the beginning to make that confession with your lips, Jesus is Lord. And I ask the question, why, if they're going to reduce uh, the confession of faith to the smallest common denominator, why did they choose the title Lord? Why wasn't the first Christian confession Jesus is Messiah or Jesus is the Son of Man? Instead, the church chose the title Lord. There was a reason for that. Before I explain that reason, let me ask a question from those of you who are here. If I were to put this question to you, what would you say? What Old Testament passage is the Old Testament passage that is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. What, what verse in the Old Testament is quoted 
more frequently in the New Testament than any other verse. I don't even know the answer to that. Nobody. Hey, this is great for, for a trivial pursuit, huh? <laughs> you get a lot of mileage out of this. Can you guess? If somebody want to uh, volunteer a guess, this is your opportunity. You're on television. You can be a hero. Why don't you give us a guess? What would you think of the Old Testament passage would be the, the one most frequently quoted in the New Testament? <clears throat> Isaiah 53. That's what I would think. Isaiah 53. You know, uh, where the suffering servant goes to the cross. The cross is so central to the New Testament, and that description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 sounds like uh, a blow by blow description of the passion of Jesus, doesn't it? And, well, certainly Isaiah 53 is quoted and quoted frequently in the New Testament, but not as often as this other text. Well, we're under limited time, so I won't uh, continue the interrogation. I'll answer the question for you. The Old Testament passage that is quoted more often than any other in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Let me read you a portion that became so important to the New Testament church as they sought to understand the identity of Jesus. You'll recognize it as soon as I read it. It starts like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. It goes on. Till I make your enemies your footstools, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, and so on. But it's that first portion of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. There's something very unusual puzzling about this text. When you look at Psalm 110 in the first verse, you'll see uh, something unusual in the way the verse is printed. Those of you who have seen the series on the holiness of God uh, would already recognize this because I went over it in that series. But it, it goes, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, said to my Lord, capital L, little O, little D. Notice that in, in your text. Now, what the translator is doing for us here is telling us that even though he's using the same word, Lord, in this text, there are two distinct Hebrew terms, the original languages, behind this text. Both of these words are being translated by the English word Lord. Whenever you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B, that usually indicates that the, the translators are taking the Hebrew word Yahweh and rendering it into the word Lord. And Yahweh, of course, is the name of God. It's the name God used to reveal himself in Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. The sacred name of God, Yahweh. And so what we read here is that uh, Yahweh is speaking. Yahweh says to my the word there in the text is Adonai. So Yahweh is speaking to the psalmist's Adonai. Well, now all we need to do is figure out what the word Adonai means. In the Old Testament, the term Adonai is the title, it is the supreme title in all of Israel to Yahweh. Adonai means the sovereign one. The one who has absolute authority over heaven and earth and over our lives. And in this sense, it was used exclusively for God. 
we mentioned before that in case of Jesus, we call Jesus, Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. In Israel, it was Yahweh Adonai. That, that word, to put it, turn it around, the Lord God. Adonai is the title. All right, so that's one problem. We've resolved that, the problem with the text. But do you see something even more difficult in this particular uh, verse? Always, Yahweh is Adonai. But in this text, Yahweh talking to someone else who is called Adonai. So that the Lord God is speaking to someone else and using that title that is normally reserved for God for this other person. Adonai now, somebody other than Yahweh, but Adonai is the psalmist Adonai, the psalmist Lord. And who is the psalmist? David. David, and he is the king of Israel. So the king writes, and this, this, incidentally, this psalm is usually seen as an enthronement psalm, a psalm that would be used in the celebration and festival to celebrate the enthronement of the king in Israel. So the king, in all of his glory and all of his splendor, comes up and he says, Yahweh speaks to my sovereign. But in simpler terms, the king is saying, God to my king and saying to my king, sit at my right hand. They're beginning to get a feel already for why that verse would be super important in the New Testament. Here we have a hint in the Old Testament of Yahweh speaking of someone other than himself who is now designated the Lord. For us to capture the significance of that, we've got to take a few minutes to examine the meaning. I've already told you the meaning of Adonai in Hebrew. When we go into the New Testament, the Greek word to translate Lord is the word kurios. I know you've heard that word in uh, its anglicized form. How many of you are Roman Catholics or have had any experience in Roman Catholic worship? Some of you have. Do you remember the curia? Curiale song? Christus Eleison, Kyrie Eleison. You hear that chant? The Roman Catholic music, Kyria, comes from the word curios. And uh, Eleison comes from the Greek word for having mercy. And so when they would sing the Kyrie Eleison, they're singing Kyrie Eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Kyrie Eleison. If you're not familiar with that, there is a word in your vocabulary, and I know everybody in this room and everybody that's watching on television has heard curios into their life. The word church. The word church doesn't sound like curios, does it? Do we have any Scottish people in here? Scots origin. What do they call the church in Scotland? The Kirk. Okay. So you got the word church. C-H-U-R-C-H. The Scots call it the Kirk. Dutchman in here? The Dutch call it the Kirk. Kirk, A-I-R-K. The Germans. The Germans. What do they call the church in Germany? Kirke. K-I-R. 
C-H-E, right? Now, do you notice any similarity in those? All that's changing is the consonant and then a vowel here and there, but it's the same basic sound. And all these words for church in the, in the German language, in the Dutch language, and in the English language all go back to the Greek word kuriake. Those who belong to the curios. So that the church literally means those who are the possessions of a curious, the Lord, one who has sovereignty and authority over people. Now, there's another problem with this to get off my feet to deal with it. In, in, in the Greek world, this word curios was used in more than one way the word Lord. In its widest use, in its simplest use, all the term curios meant was sir, like a formal way of saying mister. If a man says something to me here in this room, I'll say, what did you say, sir, or sir, would you do this, or sir, would I say, that's just a, just a normal way of speaking where we're trying to show courtesy and respect to people. In the English language, we also have a sense in which we use that title, sir, in a more elevated way, isn't it? About Sir Winston Churchill, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sir Galahad, so on. Now, we're not just talking about anybody called Mr. Now we're talking about somebody who's up another notch, in the social register. They have been granted peerage. They have been made knights of the kingdom. Uh, and they are in a special elite group now that they're called uh, sir in that degree. Well, that's what's going on with this title, Curios. There is the normal sense in which Curios was simply a form of polite address. And that's difficult for us when we read the New Testament because Jesus will meet a stranger for the first time. And, and they'll say to him, Lord, come to our house for dinner. And you scratch your head and you say, how does that person know that Jesus is Lord? I mean, they've never met him before. Well, in all probability, they didn't know that Jesus was Lord in the way we speak of Jesus as Lord, but that, that the writer is just being faithful to the formal uh, uh, way of addressing people. It's just like he said, sir, would you come home with me? And there was the second way in which the title Curios was used in biblical days. And it was as a title for someone who owned slaves, a slave owner. A slave, a slave was called a doulos, and the plural was douloi. So in order to be curios in the sense of a slave owner, you had to own slaves. Usually when that word is meant in the New Testament, the, the writers will translate it master. You know how sometimes the, the Bible People will call Jesus master. And Paul identifies himself, for example, how? Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Or they'll say that we are not our own. But we have been bought with a, with a price. We belong to Jesus. He is our master. We are his servants. So that secondary meaning of the term Lord is sprinkled throughout the New Testament to show our relationship to Jesus. 
Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. Normal, sir, the second level of slave owner, there is what we call the imperial use of the title curios in biblical days. And here, in its imperial sense, it is used only for one who is deemed to be the supreme sovereign, the supreme ruler. And it's that imperial use of curios that corresponds to the Hebrew concept of Adonai that we read in Psalm 110. So a Greek would look at that and he would say, God says to my imperial Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Now we've all heard that, uh, about how the early Christians were martyred in bunches. They uh, fed to the lions, they were killed by gladiators, they became human torches in the gardens of, Ciro, of, of Nero, they were placed as cannon fodder in the uh, Circus Maximus, and you wonder why all those Christians were getting killed all over the place, considered traitors to the Roman Empire. Because what developed in Rome was an emperor cult, where the view began to be popular that the emperor was a god. So to be a loyal Roman citizen, you had to demonstrate that you were willing to worship the emperor. And Christians wouldn't do that. And so there developed in the end of the first century and into the second century a loyalty oath in Rome where a person could show that he was a good citizen, a law-abiding person, faithful to the empire. All that person had to say publicly in order to be accepted as a loyalist to Rome was to say these words, two words, Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. And the Christians were, they were in deep trouble. Because they would say, look, we want to pay our taxes. We want to be respectable citizens. We'll drive our chariots within the speed limit. We'll bend over backwards uh, to be model citizens in the empire. We'll do all those things that you want us to do. But please, we can't say Kaiser Curios. Because Kaiser may be great, but Kaiser is not curious because our belief is Jesus, oh, curious. Jesus is looking. They would not compromise. That was at that point that they were put to death. So the New Testament says some puzzling things, one of which is that uh, we cannot say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Are you familiar with that passage? A man cannot say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Because Jesus himself says that there were people all over the place who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. In fact, he warns. He says that the last day many people will come and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name, and didn't we do that in your name? And then Jesus said, I will say to them, depart from me, 
I never knew you. So Jesus makes it clear that it is possible for human beings to open their mouths and say, Jesus is Lord without any help from God the Holy Spirit. It's very possible to make a hypocritical, dishonest confession of faith. So what does the Bible mean when it says no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit? I don't know why it says it. Here I'm setting you up for an answer, and I'm not, I can, give it, I can get, suggest a couple of possibilities. One is that it's understood in the text but not spelled out, which we do in English as well as in other languages. The unspoken assumption here is that no one can say that Jesus is Lord and mean it except by the Holy Spirit. That would obviously be the case. And I think that's probably what the, the text means. But there's another possibility. It was written at a time when people didn't get up and say, Jesus is Lord, unless they meant it. Because to say it out loud publicly is to put your life on the line. It's to say, my ultimate allegiance to the one who has ultimate authority in heaven and earth and he is curious Lord. the question I want to look at is this where does Jesus get this title who gives it to him where does it come from remember how Jesus said in his ministry says I speak nothing on my own authority but only what the father reveals to me then elsewhere he says, in a very bold and dramatic way, he says to his hearers, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A radical claim. What would you think of me if I walked in here and I said, look, now you listen to what I say and, and you can evaluate it and you can say this guy knows what he's talking about or he doesn't know what he's talking about. You're certainly under no moral obligation whatsoever to submit to what I say just because I said it. But what if I came in here and I said, look, you better listen to what I say because I'm speaking with authority. How much authority? PhD? Nah. I'm speaking to you with all authority on heaven and earth. I have the ability to bind your conscience, to impose moral obligations upon you so that if you don't listen to what I say, you're in deep weeds. You'd think I was crazy if I made a statement like that. But that's what Jesus did. He said, I have all the authority in heaven and earth because the Father gave it to me. Three times in the New Testament, the voice of God the Father is heard audibly. And in two out of three occasions, it's the same message. This is my beloved Son. On one occasion... This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And on the other occasion, even more emphatic, this is my beloved son, the one to whom he has given all authority. And the one whom God commands that we hear and that we listen to. And we see this most graphically in what is called the canonic hymn of Paul's letter to the Philippians, which we find in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where Paul says this, and this is where he's talking about humility, about our humility, 
mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, think about Jesus' humility. So being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's a, a, an awkward way of translating it. Another way of translating it is, that have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, took his equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. That is not a prerogative or a privilege to be held on to jealously or tenaciously. But Jesus, who had this supreme dignity, who has this supreme authority, willingly and voluntarily emptied himself, the apostle says, emptied himself, making himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of flesh. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You've heard that hymn, right? For Jesus, who has all this dignity, willingly lays it aside, and takes upon himself the form of a servant. Now the question is, what is God's reaction to that? Paul continues, therefore, this is the conclusion, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. Now every Christian has heard that. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What does that mean, that every knee should bow? It means that at the name of Jesus, every human being should prostrate himself, should acquiesce to his authority, to recognize his sovereignty, be on our knees before him and to open our mouths and confess Jesus O Curios, Jesus Christ is a Lord. What Paul is saying here is that because of Christ's humiliation, his voluntary humiliation, God has bestowed upon Jesus name is above the name. That is, God has given to Jesus the highest title that can be given to Jesus. Now, I know there are folks who read this text and I'll say to them, what is the highest name that anybody can ever have? And they'll say, Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying here. The title that Paul is speaking of that is the highest name, the name that is above every name, is the title Lord. It's the title Curious, so that the name of Jesus, he's not saying the name Jesus is the highest name, but at the very name of Jesus, Jesus is the one who's given the highest name. At the name of Jesus, your mouth is supposed to open up and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, Father. Here's what the Unitarian doesn't understand. There are people who feel that if we worship Christ, if we adore Christ, if we confess the deity of Christ, that somehow we cast a shadow on the character of God the Father. 
it's God the Father who takes his name, Adonai, and gives it to his son. It is God the Father, authority of his sovereignty to God the Son. It is God the Father who demands and commands that all men everywhere kiss the Son and honor and adore him. It is God the Father who calls him Curios, gives him that name. That's why the early church saw in that name such exaltation. We wanted to preserve that title for Jesus because they didn't want to have any lesser view of Jesus than Jesus' Father had of Jesus. So it is the duty of the Christian to call Jesus what God calls Jesus. Not that Jesus is the Father's Lord. I don't mean that. But the name that the Father gives to the Son is the name Curios. And he's not just any Lord, is he? But we find later on in the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord not only in the imperial sense but in the superlative sense, the ultimate sense. And the way the Jew described that was the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You read that in the Greek, it's curios, curios. Lord of Lords, not just any Lord, the Lord of all of the lords. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and what? And ever? <laughs> and then what? And then what do you say? Hallelujah. He is Lord. That's the confession of the church because that's the declaration of the Father. Searching in all the wrong places. This is Kent Ham, inviting you to check out our streaming platform, Answers TV. Today is Halloween here in America, and for many, this is just a day to dress up the kids and get some candy from the neighbors. But for others, it's a day of witchcraft and wickedness. And sadly, witchcraft, New Age spirituality, and Satanism are growing across the U.S. And as we saw yesterday, this is because the human heart always wants to worship something. As Christianity has largely been kicked out of U.S. society, people are searching for something to fill that void. And they're turning to all the wrong places. The answer isn't more glorification of self or sin. It's the turn to Christ. Jesus died to pay your sin debt and offers new life. So come to him today. Discover more about God's Word, the Gospel message, and other biblical truths when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Do the pressures of life have you down? Are you struggling in your finances, your job, your marriage? Why not try a dose of Romans 8.28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to 
change to his purpose. So the next time you're having a bad day, cheer up and remind yourself that God is working this out for something better. Fired from your job, Romans 8.28. Been stabbed in the back, Romans 8.28. Do you have cancer, Romans 8.28. Good things are coming, you just gotta believe. So smile your cares away with Romans 8.28. And if you think that's the meaning of that verse, you're going to be disappointed when things don't work out the way you believed they would. The explanation for Romans 8.28 comes in the very next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the good, mentioned in verse 28, is being conformed to the image of Christ, mentioned in verse 29. It's not a new job vindication or better health. It's Christ. It's God working in all things for his glory. That's the meaning. If you know someone who's going through a tough time, don't quote Romans 8, 28 tell them to cheer up. One, that's not the proper meaning, and two, it's insensitive. You're saying God wants to do something better for them, but first they have to have a good attitude. God is sovereign, working even through suffering to make us more like Christ. We get to share in his glory those whom he placed his affection on before time began and will keep for all eternity. That's the promise of Romans 8, 28 and 29 when we understand the text. Do atheists really mean it? This is Ken Ham of the Ministries of Answers in Genesis Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. In my conversations with atheists, I've had many of them say that if they just had more evidence for God's existence, they'd believe. But do they really mean that? I find that no, they don't. When I give them evidence that confirms there's a creator behind life in the universe, such as DNA, they just claim it's not evidence and just interpret it through their secular worldview. I've had them say, if there's a God, why doesn't he come and show himself? Well, I respond, he did, and they crucified him. Yes, the problem isn't the evidence. The issue is the heart. So what can we do to reach them? Well, that's for tomorrow. Uncover evidence that confirms the truth of God's word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and get free teaching emails from Ken at AnswersRadio.com. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is such a polite guest, isn't he? He stands at the door of our hearts if we just open up and let him in. At least that's the picture we paint with that verse, but that's not the context. Jesus is addressing the church at Laodicea to whom he gives another famous verse. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, so because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And he rebukes them for their complacent faith. Those who my love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That's verse 19, right before he says, I stand at the door and knock. This is not the picture of a guest looking for someone to welcome him into their heart. Jesus Christ is the master of the house. And when the master comes back, because remember, this is the book of Revelation. We're talking about the return of Christ here. When he comes back, he expects to find alert and working servants, not lazy, complacent freeloaders acting like they own the place. Such persons will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, Be ready, for the Son of Man will return at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And when he comes, it will be as a conquering king, and we will sit with him and all of the faithful at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's a much more glorious picture than that of a passive Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts when we understand the text. 
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Lazarus, come forth. This is Kent Ham, editor of the book Demolishing Evolution Arguments, Glass House. Yesterday, we learned that unbelievers don't have an evidence problem. They have a heart problem. So is giving them evidence useless? Well, absolutely not. I love to use the account of Lazarus as a metaphor for this. You see, Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. When Jesus arrived at his tomb, he commanded those nearby to roll away the stone. Now, Jesus could have certainly done that, but he asked the people to do what they could do, move the stone. Then Jesus commanded the dead man to come forth. We can't save the spiritually dead. Only Jesus can. But we can move the stones, sharing reasons for the hope we have, and trust God for the results. Find out more about reaching unbelievers with the saving gospel message when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Get equipped at AnswersRadio.com. Do you know there's a new Speaker of the House named Mike Johnson? I heard that we're looking for a new Speaker of the House. He is against abortion and against homosexuality. Do you think abortion is wrong? And do you think homosexuality is morally wrong? Oh, I don't. I don't think abortion is wrong or homosexuality. When a woman's having a child, is she having a baby? Yes. So answer this question for me. It's okay to kill a baby in the womb. When? Never. So have you changed your mind about abortion? I think so, yeah. Okay, now let's look at homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Do you believe the Bible? I do believe the Bible somewhere. But I'm kind of like straight away from it. The more I got older. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Is adultery wrong? I feel like that's morally wrong. Yeah. Well, the Bible in the same verse says homosexuality is wrong and God lies. Did you know that? It says this. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor thieves to inherit the kingdom of God. So homosexuality is morally wrong in God's eyes, and that's what matters. Eric, are you going to heaven when you die? I could obviously just say I'm a good person, right? But only that's up to me. I think I should my actions speak for itself. Okay, well, let's see if you are a good person. 
How many lives have you told in your life? Many. Ever stolen something, even if it's small? Yes. Ever used God's name in vain? I have. Using God's holy name as a cuss word, which is called blasphemy. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I have. It's a quick summation of your court case on Judgment Day. This is for you to judge yourself, Eric. You told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, we'll look at four of them, you're going to be innocent or guilty. I'd probably go to hell if anything. The Bible says all liars will be apart in the lake of fire. The thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer, will inherit God's kingdom. So you're in big trouble. Can you see that? Yeah. Since Jesus is like all forgiving. Jesus is all forgiving. Let me give you one Bible verse, okay? This is from the book of Thessalonians. Same Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of their Lord Jesus Christ. So you're in big trouble. So what can you do to be made right with God? Yeah. Recognize I've done wrong. Not to like get away from that habit of doing so. I still don't think like homosexuality is bad. I don't think I don't think I don't think that's gonna change. You've changed yeah. on abortion, saying homosexuality being okay. Yeah. A man lies with another man, it's an abomination. That means it's extremely detestable to God because it's unclean. Okay. Now what you need is to repent and put your faith in Jesus. You've heard of him dying on the cross? Uh, now most people have, but they haven't heard this. And Eric, if you can get a grip of this, it's gonna change everything for you. Mm-hmm. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law, Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said, it is finished, just before he died. He was saying, paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone else pays those fines. That's legal. You're guilty, but you walk because someone paid your fine. Well, God can take the death sentence off you because of what Jesus did on the cross and paying your fine. God can legally dismiss your case. Time everlasting life is a free gift. Not because you're good, but because he's good and kind and rich in mercy. All you have to do to find everlasting life is to repent and put your trust in him who died on the cross and rose again on the third day. Trust in him like you trust a parachute. Say, God, forgive me. I've I've done things that are morally wrong. I need a new heart. And the miracle, Eric, is if you repent and put your faith in Christ, you'll be born again, and then everything God loves, you'll love. Say, lying is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Fornication is wrong. Pornography is wrong. Killing babies in the womb is wrong. Pedophilia is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong because God detests those things. And you want to align yourself with God. And you'll delight in what God delights in and you'll thirst after righteousness. And that's the miracle of being born again. Do you agree with what I'm saying? Yes, I do. So you're going to think about what we talked about. You've been very patient. You're going to give us some thought? Of course. And when are you going to repent and put your faith in Christ? Yeah. Right now. Serious? Right I feel like whenever you feel like you, you've done wrong, I think that's the perfect time. Are you sorry for your sins? I am sorry for my sins. Can I pray with you? Of course. Father, thank you for Eric and his open heart and his listen to the things I've said. I pray he'll weigh them up against your word and that this day he'll truly repent, be born again with a new heart. New desires that he will thirst after righteousness because you've given given him that new heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do have a Bible at home. You do? Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? 
Yeah, for free. Yeah, <laughs> Let me grab it for you. Okay, thank Thanks, you. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your space. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions for the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. We can't raise the dead. This is Ken Ham, and our ministry has produced a series of great evangelistic prophecies. Yesterday we learned that we can't save anyone. After all, the Bible teaches that unbelievers aren't just spiritually sick, they're dead, and we can't bring the dead to life. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. So our job is just to obey God, preach the gospel, call everyone to repent, provide answers for the hope that we have, contend for the faith and stand boldly on the authority of God's word. We do what we can do and then we trust the Lord. It's God, not us who saves. So we simply obey his word, do our part and trust that Christ will build his church. The gates of hell just can't prevail against it. Discover more about the message of the gospel and how we can reach others with the hope of Christ at AnswersRadio.com. Get equipped at AnswersRadio.com. Romans 4, 5 says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification by faith alone is the gospel, the belief that we are forgiven our sins and made innocent before God by the atoning blood of Christ and his resurrection from the grave. You can do nothing to earn this. It is by the grace of God. Whoever teaches that salvation is a combination of faith and works is teaching a different gospel. The Catholic and Orthodox churches both deny justification by faith alone. Salvation is by faith in the Eucharist or by faith in baptism. That's a different gospel. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 says that anyone who preaches a different gospel is accursed. Galatians 2, 16 says we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now when a person has been saved they confirm their faith by obedience. If they do not obey the commands of Christ they're still dead in their sins. This is what James meant when he said faith without works is a dead faith. Now someone might say well what about faith? Isn't that something that I do? Nope, because as you study the Bible, you find that even faith itself is a gift from God. As Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ when we understand the text. So I got for now for Truth Be Told Radio. I want to say thanks for listening and for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.